you are now listening to the Rethink Future Food Tech podcast. I'm Oliver Katz, conference producer for the series. Through these conversations, we feature key leaders across the value chain to explore the most disruptive technologies and innovative ideas transforming our food system. To find out more about our annual Future Food Tech events and webinars taking place in London, New York, San Francisco and Singapore, please visit futurefoodtech.com or follow the links in the description. In this time of hardship, we really want to keep the food tech community looking towards the future and feel compelled to give inspirational leaders a platform to share their learnings with the wider ecosystem. What better conversation to kickstart our podcast series than one that deep dives into the innovation techniques employed by several leading corporations, hearing how they create safe spaces for blue sky thinking and stay successful in this fast changing space. Originally set to be a panel discussion at our San Francisco event, we felt it needed to be heard. Over to you, Adam. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Adam Lyle. I'm the executive chairman and co-founder of Padang and Co, an innovation catalyst based here in Singapore. Uh, I was to be chairing a uh, the panel at Future Food Tech um, uh, just a, a few weeks ago on, on March 20, but of course with COVID-19, uh, things have been interrupted as they have for all of our businesses. Uh, but fortunately, uh, four of our panel members have been able to uh, join us this morning and basically pick up where we were going to be a few weeks ago. Um, but the general topic that we're going to be discussing uh, today is uh, from the top down, inspiring R&D teams to create next-gen products. Now, we, we still have got a... Uh, we're not uh, defining R&D just as um, science-based R&D, but looking at uh, culinary uh, innovation, process innovation, because we also want to expand out from R&D, but also looking more generally uh, at uh, corporate innovation uh, over the next sort of 45 minutes or so. I guess just a, a couple of opening remarks, and, and then I'll introduce um, the terrific panel I have uh, here with me. I guess, you know, many times it's sort of kind of popular perhaps to overplay the role of startups, how startups are, you know, kind of snapping at the heels of big food, sort of going to take over the world. Now, some of that may be true, but certainly, again, uh, judging by the uh, companies we have on the call today, we, we know uh, big companies are here to stay. And certainly, I think we all agree, it's not a zero-sum game. It is very much today about a combination of collaboration, it's uh, coexistence and um, co-creation. So what, what we want to uh, cover in our time together this morning is looking at uh, how large companies ca can continue to innovate, uh, what they're doing with R&D, what are some of the changes that have actually impacted in recent times. Uh, as uh, some of the panelists and I were talking before the call, uh, I think at times like this, that the crisis that the world is facing, uh, the people we have on the call are all making an incredible contribution uh, to feeding the world. Uh, organizations all based in the USA, obviously uh, contributing to food needs in the USA and beyond. So I do actually think that um, you know, some of the topics we're talking about today, collaboration, co-creation, and some general nourishment, uh, most probably even more relevant in some of our thinking than they perhaps we might have uh, thought about just a few weeks ago. First of all, I'd like to uh, introduce the panelists that I have with me this morning. From Campbell Soup Company, Craig Slashev, who's Senior Vice President, Head of Research and Development. Campbell Soup Company, of course, doesn't need much of an introduction to any of you. We all know that can, and certainly we've seen those cans of soup being sought after over the last couple of weeks. Certainly, uh, you know, Campbell Soup has been with us. We all know it. Real food that matters for life's moments, and I think uh, for current times, really important stuff. Craig uh, leads the global function. He looks after strategy, divisional product development, corporate science and tech, 
as well as handling regulatory nutrition and culinary teams and is driving a very robust uh, product pipeline. Next, we have Lorette Rondonet, who's the CEO of Edlong, scientific art of authentic taste, something I, I really like the sound of. Lorette is president and CEO of Edlong. Kind of fun fact, the world's only independent certified woman-owned flavor company specializing in dairy and dairy-free uh, flavors. Next, TC Chatterjee, the CEO of Griffith Foods, blending care and creativity to nourish the world. TC's CEO responsible for delivering the company's purpose-driven strategy. He's been with the company for um, many years. He uh, served previously as uh, Chief Operating Officer and Group President in uh, Central and South America. Actually, as he shared with me, he's all about his, we were talking about different uh, personality styles and purpose, 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 which goes to the core of Griffith. And then finally, John Purcell, who's the head of vegetables, R&D, crop science for Bayer, uh, shaping the future of agriculture. John uh, has been in the business for, well, I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying, three decades I can uh, see here um, globally, worked in agriculture. He also is a part owner of a family ranching operation in Montana. So uh, he's very much uh, part of the earth, soul of the earth, and it knows everything there is to know about veggies, as I've heard him speak before. So we've got a, a great team of folks here. We've got a combination, if you like, of big food. We've got ingredients uh, and a nice sort of balance across the U.S. So obviously, if they're talking about R&D and sort of corporate innovation, I just wanted to get a sense of what are the big macro trends that we think have been impacting R&D over sort of recent times and not sort of getting into, you know, how we're now doing things, but what are the sort of the big factors that have impacted and perhaps changed the way we're thinking about R&D and uh, corporate innovation? So, Craig, if I sort of hit off with you, um, what do you see as uh, the, the major impacts, macro trends that have been affecting R&D uh, and corporate innovation in recent years? Sure. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I think there's there really two areas that um, have transformed how R&D does the job that it does. <clears throat> the, first, the first is around the area of speed. And, and uh, as macro trends and, and uh, micro trends that come from them accelerate in markets, the ability to address them quickly through innovation is is so important, and so you know we we kind of break down the speed factor at Campbell's about three areas. You know, one is speed to insights. How quickly are you picking up the insight that that reflects what's happening in the market? The second is speed to design. So how quickly are you able to translate that insight into design attributes and build a product? And then speed to commercialization. How quickly are you able to get it out to market and get it on the shelf in consumers' hands? So speed is the first area. The second one, which is really where uh, the exciting fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence are playing, is around predictive analytics to be able to determine with some degree of confidence that this is the right trend to be following and this is how the trend will express itself in market. Those are the two things I, I've seen really, uh, you know, bring significant change in how R&D functions operate now across the industry. And, and at Campbell's, we're leveraging our, what we call an insight engine, to be real-time accessible to trends that are happening and then quickly be able to get them out to market. Um, so that's kind of how we see the, the big shifts in R&D across the industry. Uh, um, yeah, that's amazing to sort of see that. Now, Lorette, perhaps to, to you, I, I know you've got uh, uh, views around sort of uh, AI as well. Where, where do you see some of the big macro trends that are driving uh, changes in R&D? Uh, I couldn't agree more with Craig. I think it's exactly around speed and getting getting a product to market that you feel is going to succeed, which used to take so much longer as far as doing, you know, CLT testing, et cetera. I think that AI does give us insights into what looks very likely to succeed in certain demographics, which is very cool. And we've been using that technology as well, and it's rather amazing. Um, I think it's really been interesting with this COVID-19 and all of us sheltering in place. 
the innovation aspect has not slowed down. I think all of us talked before we got on this call that we are so busy. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see even how people are innovating, how we continue to innovate by using Teams, by using video. Yeah. We have a lot of people tasting, you know, we send out samples and we're tasting on the screen. And, and it's, it's almost, um, it's, it's been a positive, you know, I think it's, uh, I think even in that, like in this time that I, I love seeing how people are just joining together and figuring out ways to, to keep people fed. It's very cool. Yeah. Just picking up on that, and, and do you think we actually are even accelerating? I mean, we're taking speed to a new level to, to deal with the problems that we're currently facing. I think we are, and I also think, Craig, you talked about, you know, changing your timeline from nine months to 24 months, and I think now we're focusing on the important projects. There's no fluff in the pipelines. It's like real projects and making sure the resources are put towards what's important yeah, I, I think you're right about the fluff. Just even on our, uh, you know, daily calls, multiple calls a day, everybody is very on point. Uh, everyone's saying we've got to get, keep getting going, uh, and no, no time for extra fluff. Um, TC, uh, what are you seeing in some of the the big macro trends that are impacting you? Yeah, so thank you, Adam. So the, the way I'd like to answer the question is, is twofold. One, um, the way we look at it at Griffith Foods, uh, and this proceeds the current crisis, uh, although that's very much on, on top of our uh, minds at this point. Um, innovation um, for us is very much a way to bring our purpose to life. And we talked about our purpose being we blend care and creativity to nourish the world. And that is, um, and we're looking very much at innovation to enable that. And that is in the context of Griffith Foods, but I would submit to you that that is also uh, true as a macro trend broadly for the food industry. And here's what I mean by that. I think one of the significant trends that's evolved um, uh, over time and, and is, is coming to bear uh, now is that the, the stakeholders uh, that are driving innovation is much broader than it used to be. What I mean by that is it used to be very much what does the consumer want and how do we design our innovation processes and innovation to meet the consumer needs. And that hasn't gone away. Uh, and, and that will uh, obviously still uh, remain at the forefront of, of what drives innovation. However, there's more than just the consumer needs uh, that more and more companies, in my opinion, are working into the innovation process. Uh, when, when I say stakeholders, I mean, you know, is it not only good for the consumer, is it good for the planet, is it good for um, uh, other stakeholders, you know, farmers and so on and so forth. All of those questions are becoming a lot, uh, lot uh, stronger as we're looking at driving innovation it used to be not necessarily binary but used to be okay consumer needs consumer wants and how how do we design our innovation to meet those needs my opinion there's is there's a lot more that's going into the matrix if you will of what the drivers of innovation are uh, and i would submit to you that this is true for the food industry as a whole so that's one macro trend and the other and i want i want to reiterate uh, and agree with uh, with uh, both craig and, and lorette in terms of innovation and the connection to technology it used to be that the food industry was considered there, there was high tech and then there was food uh, and, yeah. uh, and it was almost like never the twain shall meet but that's that's not true anymore it's come together at such a rapid pace and is a significant driver of innovation uh, and an enabler of innovation this concept of technology in a, in a variety of different facets and we've, we've cited some examples whether it's AI machine learning and, and so on and so forth. So those are the two kind of macro trends that jump out at me as uh, as drivers of innovation that has significantly changed just in the past few years. And, and in the sense that um, it, it, in your organization, it's of the innovation is to drive the purpose. Is that, is that correct? Sort of you're, you're constantly innovating um, so that you're delivering on your uh, purpose proposition? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the questions we asked ourselves is, it, uh, Part of our purpose is nourishing the world. That's a big aspiration. What does that mean? Yeah. How, do, how does that, uh, you know, come to bear in terms of what we're offering, not only to our customers but to the world? And so, things that we've started incorporating into our our innovation efforts is okay. This is something that obviously meets the evolving needs of the consumers, but also things such as sustainability, things such as you know, what's good for the farmers from whom we get our inputs, and is there a way to kind of have both a social impact and a business impact, the concept of shared value at the same time. Those, those are all 
things that are easy to say, actually making that happen, uh, we're looking at uh, innovation and in the broadest sense of the term, and you started uh, with that, Adam, which is it's not just about product innovation. That's not how we, how we look at it. You know, innovation in all of these facets, and that's, that's what we're looking to incorporate into the way we look at innovation, multifaceted, much broader than, uh, I speak for our, uh, for our company, that we used to before. Yeah, and I think it's obviously all the folks on the call uh, all committed in a similar way. And I just think that the current uh, time frame we're going through, uh, innovation for purpose is um, going to be a stronger and stronger theme. Um, John, just to sort of, um, John Purcell, to sort of um, round us off in terms of the, the big trends that you're seeing, uh, you know, from the vegetable side of things and how you're incorporating uh, some of those uh, macro trends. Um, what, what's top of mind for you? Yeah, I think uh, TC had a really, really key point, and that's around, you know, what when I think about for us in the produce world, uh, what consumers are looking for, you know, it's not just about uh, is it does it taste good, its appearance, it's convenient, all the things that people have looked for, but it's also basing, asking more fundamental questions is where did that food come from? How was it produced? And that gets you all the way back where I spend a lot of my time, that's on the farm and you know, on the ranches that are producing our food. And I think what's cool about it is that the, the ability of our, of our producers, our farmers and ranchers to really provide not just the end product that people are looking for, but really the methods on the ground to actually deliver the kind of food experience that people are looking for. And I think a part of that then, the other macro trend is this confluence of technologies. You know, for, for many years, we've always uh, talked about the toolbox and, and making sure we have all the tools available for our growers to be successful. Well, recently, you know, we've expanded well beyond the conventional toolbox of, uh, you know, the traditional agricultural inputs, the genetics, the germplasm, and this, this leap into uh, you know, a point that uh, both uh, Rhett and, uh, and, and, and Craig made around the digital age. Um, you know, when I think about uh, how we're using uh, digital technologies to help manage our crops, to help uh, survey uh, the performance of the crops and the quality of the crops that's going into the into the grocery stores or into the restaurants. Um, it's a really cool time. And then you add into that the robotics and the automation that's happening. So it is amazing to see this confluence of technologies of kind of traditional agricultural uh, technologies that have always played a part in burning food. And now with just the explosion of on the digital side and add into that robotics, automation, et cetera, um, because we have major challenges. You know, we're trying to meet what the consumers are looking for. But for growers around, around the world, you know, they're faced with labor shortages. They're faced with input costs. So we have to have every tool in the toolbox to really deliver deliver the kind of experience consumers are want, but make it a, the ability of the growers, uh, the producers, to stay in business as well to provide that produce that, that the consumers are looking for. I, I'm just picking up on uh, Craig's original point. I mean, the, the speed side of things. Are, are you seeing um, w with those tools, with precision agriculture, that's also contributing to the, the whole speed factor for you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you start with the, the revolution that's happened in biology over the last several decades, you know, with the whole genomic solutions and really understanding at the genetic level. That's allowed us to accelerate dramatically our breeding programs to deliver those great new varieties. Um, but now with the advent of, of our uh, uh, of these digital tools and how we're managing crops, but also how we're managing our pipelines, because we're using those same tools to accelerate our ability to deliver those new varieties to the marketplace. So absolutely, and speed is, is, is of utmost consideration as you're trying to bring innovations to the marketplace. Back to you, Craig, uh, in the same uh, vein of the speed factor. How have you seen yourself sort of change your actual uh, process of innovation uh, to develop you know, and speed up your R&D? What, what's been happening at Campbell? Yeah, it's a great question, Adam. And it's really the uh, the process we went on was to to benchmark ourselves against industries known for speed. And the one you you look at most is the tech industry. I mean, the ability to to turn both hardware and software out on mind-boggling uh, timelines is kind of that what that industry is known for. So we re we rewired our entire R and D process against agile design methodology, which is what is used in tech development. Um, you know, we had to do some modifications, and just like a tech startup, we, we downloaded the plans right off the Internet on how Agile design <laughs> methodology was completed. 
Um, and then we modified it for CPG food because there are some, you know, there's some different elements and steps needed to, to do design work. Um, and that's really, to, to link back to the, the comment before about speed, that's what allowed us to, to get our, our platform developments, which are our big new technology platforms, you know, down from 24 months to nine months to market. Um, and uh, it's, it's not that much rocket science. It's basically good old problem definition and deconstruction and then um, an agile resource uh, methodology of getting the right people on the project just for as long as you need them. Um, and then have they move on to something different. So that's really the, been the game changer for us on speed uh, is leveraging agile methodology across our entire pipeline. Yeah, I mean, the, the value creation going from 24 months down to nine months, I mean, th 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 those numbers must be enormous in an organization your size. Oh, absolutely. And, and beyond just meeting the market um, opportunities, within the R&D world, you know what speed also gets you is number of iterations and and there's a research there's a reason why it's called research because many times you don't get it right the first time and you've got to hit another <laughs> whack at that um so the more you know the, the the more time you get to be able to optimize your design the the better you'll be in the market you know so it is about speed it's also about accuracy it's about did i get the design to hit that sweet spot that that insight instructed me to hit and that's that's really the, the the you know the double whammy, if you will, in terms of being successful in the market. Okay, um, moving on uh, to UTC. Um, just looking at other sort of ways or approaches to enable sort of food companies to kind of, uh, if you will, develop safe spaces or different approaches to um, drive R and D. What what are some of the uh, areas that uh, you've noticed, or other options that uh, you feel that uh, large corporations can be adopting? Well, uh, the uh, one of the one of the challenges with innovation this is in, uh, has has been in, in true for for quite some time. Uh, certainly for organizations that have the scale, which is a huge uh, benefit, uh, that in itself sometimes. Uh, acts as a little bit of a barrier. And again, speaking for ourselves, one of the things that we talk about uh, internally within our organization is, is the natural antibodies uh, that prevent uh, more innovative thinking and, and bringing innovation to the fore. Uh, because there is an element of um, you know, scale and the risk uh, that's associated with it, uh, and, and these are, and we don't, we look at it from the standpoint of, okay, let's recognize that these are barriers and how best do we overcome them? What things do we have to, in place to mitigate those? I don't know that we've, we've come up with, with pristine answers yet, but this is cer certainly something that is uh, a part of our active conversations at multiple levels within the organization. And it's not just our belief very strongly is that innovation is not just the purview of R&D. Uh, innovation uh, is is something that is pervasive throughout the organization, and it's and it's uh, when we start looking at innovation, you know, broadly, that's the best kind of backdrop that we can set for ourselves to ensure that innovation happens with the right amount of risk taking. And and the honest answer is, uh, the risk taking uh, as a mindset uh, is one of those things that we need to better enable. And here I'm speaking specifically for our company. Uh, that we need to better enable uh, as as broadly as possible, and that's one of those things that we are uh, we're actively working on is to create the right innovative mindset uh, to create that safe space, if you will. Uh, it's easy for right. us to say, um, you know, um, we want to we want to fail fast and let's celebrate failures. My personal belief is it's not so much about celebrating failures; it's about celebrating the learning that we get from the failures and how do we take that and adapt that into kind of the next iteration, if you will. Sure. Um, and, and Lorette, in terms of sort of kind of looking at collaboration models, um, you know, what, what, what have you noticed in this area with the sort of the startups and uh, uh, different approaches? Uh, a bit like uh, if uh, Danone was with us, uh, I'd be asking about MISTA, uh, which is, you know, an exciting program that Givadon and Danone are part of with others. Um, what are sort of some of the collaboration uh, opportunities that you've seen with startups? So I was just saying to myself, um, I like the <laughs> ecosystem concept, and I think AI fits into that too because really that's an external source for us. But I feel like, and even that Chicagoland Food and Beverage Network, um, Bigger Table, 
project that I talked about last time that um yeah that I think is so cool with the hot cocoa and that was you know an ecosystem as well where you bring in like the best of the best and and get it done in six months and I um so I, I like that model a lot I well I just think this conversation is really interesting as far as um kind of the minimum minimally viable aspect and I I find it interesting I, I grew up as a food scientist so and and TC when you were talking about technology and and food didn't ever really happen in the same sentence and thought and I think that um the scientific method really doesn't allow for such rapid innovation and there's and you have to be so careful on risk so I think it's interesting that probably these startups have made us all look at how we manage that and how we break those barriers down. Um, we definitely have been trying to speed up that. And I think mindset is a great book and a great word. I don't know if you guys have ever read that book, but I found it intriguing. It talks about not being perfect and really you want a growth mindset, not a perfection mindset. And I think all of that kind of fits together in this whole conversation around innovation and making sure that you really try to live that. But um, I think as far as being able to innovate quickly in the way we do it with our ecosystem, I also like the, con the, the concept that Craig brought up about insights, design, and then commercialization. So at Edlong, we use a lot of different people in our ecosystem because we are not masters of everything. And we use a, a company out of Washington State called New Edge, and it's an insights company. Um, the woman that runs it is a brilliant PhD brain. Talking to her is like, blows your mind. But I think it's been important for us to get those insights right. And again, she always talks about the environment has to be right. You can't kill an opportunity. You can kill an idea, but you can't kill an opportunity if the environment's right. So having those platforms, so starting with the insights and then using platforms that are right for the current conditions has really helped us speed up and be working on the right projects and not throwing resources and R&D time at the wrong at the wrong things. So helps us to bring value, hopefully, to the customers at the end of the day, too, whether they're startups I, I, or multinationals. Uh, and specifically in your question, you talked about um, MNCs and startups. There are multiple ways that the, the two collaborate. So from an MNC standpoint or a big company standpoint, models would be, you know, direct with startup using incubators. You, you referred to Mr. There are other examples. Uh, using VC yep. funds, either corporate VC funds or crowdsourcing. All of these are kind of some examples of various ways that MNCs and, and startups have begun to interact and, and will continue to interact. And, and John, obviously, you know, a company uh, your size, um, you know, you're a giant, but, but how do you perhaps uh, work in with these other different sort of uh, models to sort of test out ideas or do you do everything internal or do you reach out uh, and look at sort of collaborations? Uh, no, we're not, we're not that smart to do it all internal. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of smart people out there and a lot of innovators out there. So I, I love the, I love the term that Lorette used around the ecosystem. And I think that really what it, I mean, it really is about uh, cultivating many different avenues to, to have collaboration. I mean, we're very fortunate. You know, we have over a, Two billion euros a year in R&D in bear crop science. So obviously, significant investments in R&D that we can take advantage of. But we also have dedicated groups uh, who deal with technology collaboration. So these are collaborations with other other companies that we want to help uh, help drive uh, innovation. Uh, we have a dedicated group that looks at university research and how do we fund university research that can supplement that. We have a dedicated venture capital group. Uh, for investment in, in, in startups and smaller uh, smaller uh, entities. So it's got to be an ecosystem approach. And what we love is we look at our R&D uh, budget. Uh, it's not just an internal budget. It really is uh, very externally focused as well because the innovations come too fast. And there's too many game changers out there that, you know, we're, we're not smart enough to or, or certainly uh, uh, to predict everything that's going to be happening out there. So you've got to be in touch with all these communities, whether it be the academic community, the venture capital world, and then the collaborative groups uh, who work with, uh, with more established companies. Just on that, when you're covering so many bases, how do you kind of manage what could be, say, potential conflict between, say, internal R&D working on something 
and your teams that are very much looking on the outside that are sort of more the open innovation kind of guys. Do you find sort of tension between those two or is it a, you know, a positive tension because you're just trying to get to the best or at times do you think it is actually difficult to manage those different agendas? I will say, I think, and I think that I can speak for a lot of folks in the industry, it's matured a lot. I think there used to be more tension, the uh, non-invented here kind of syndromes, but I think now everybody has seen so many successes on where these collaborative uh, efforts have paid dividends for both for us as well as for the companies we're, we're dealing with that it, I think it's a much more mature approach. So our leadership team, we have individuals who, who are serving on that leadership team who don't have responsibilities necessarily for running internal uh, efforts, they're really focused much more on the external piece. So we really see it as part of a broader R&D or innovation portfolio. And, you know, I think we've, uh, I think the, the industry has matured nicely in this respect of respecting that there's lots of pieces to this. And that's way I think that's the way you avoid uh, any of those tensions, because if it's all part of your portfolio, even if you're not necessarily doing the work yourself, um, then that's a healthy way to do it from a, uh, you know, from a, uh, investment perspective and a portfolio management perspective. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a little bit of that, you've got to break a, a few eggs along the way to make the omelette better. As you say, I think there's a level of maturation that's sort of going on in the industry. In terms of that, I, I guess trying to look at some, um, great examples. Uh, we were just sort of talking about, uh, different areas, uh, before. TC, we, we were sort of looking at, um, you know, who are some of the sort of the leaders that are sort of driving a different innovation, uh, different models, uh, in different categories. Um, you had some comments around sort of alternative proteins, which I thought were interesting. Yeah, so the example that, that you know, comes to mind uh, definitely as it pertains to innovation and how um, Large companies are are incorporating uh, innovation into the into the into their portfolios. And one example that that comes to mind is is in the area of alternative proteins, whether it's plant based or other sources of alternative proteins. Uh, the observation is that larger um, protein companies, meat companies, uh, initially looked at uh, that entire area with the, with the with a level of circumspection, uh, understandably, because there's, there's a big risk of alternative proteins kind of cannibalizing the core business of, of the larger protein companies. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where that started. Um, and there was a little bit of a wait and see, a little bit of the, the reactions, uh, in, in my opinion, kind of covered the gamut from, well, it's, it's, it's a fad that's going to go away to, you know, let's wait and see how this develops. Uh, and, but in, in the recent past, uh, that's um, transitioned significantly at a very rapid pace to now the big companies, big protein companies, actually embracing the concept of alternative proteins as a way of of expanding their their product portfolio in the area of proteins as a whole, not just as meat companies. Uh, and uh, and and that's been a fascinating thing to see from the outside looking in, where it, what was considered earlier on as a potential threat has now been. Not just incorporated into the into the product offerings and portfolio, but with enthusiasm, uh, both from the standpoint of broadening the product portfolio as well as uh, the early point I was making about incorporating those learnings into the way these companies are innovating, and that has led to a significant growth in the in the scaling of innovation. One of the things that uh, that we've talked about before is you know. The, it, between the role of the startups and the and the larger companies, uh, in Scott Donahue from Next World Evergreen has, has had a very very profound quote that always jumps to mind, which is, in today's environment, uh, it's never been easier to start a brand, but it's never been more difficult to scale a brand, uh, and and that really is is the is is where the collaboration, the ecosystem effect that we've been talking about between the startup world, which is bringing innovation uh, in food and in spades, and the larger companies, which has to scale, and it's the right collaboration between those two. And so this, this entire, um, the, the way alternative proteins has, has been treated, embraced, is an example that comes to mind that, that, um, that I think is, is a great example of how uh, this is impacting the food industry in, in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll come back to the, the, the scaling question in a second, but uh, it, it's interesting that something was that perhaps was perceived as a threat has now been turned uh, 
why do we think that might uh, be? I mean, in your industry, Lorette, with particular sort of threats that you've seen around, uh, you know, vegan cheese and what have you, um, what, what stops them sort of embracing and not sort of jumping on and seeing the opportunity? I think it starts with their core and their essence and, and in the cheese world and the vegan cheese that we play a big part of and as well as dairy cheese type products. It's their essence, it's their identity, and it's it's changing um, for them to not feel so threatened by it and to be able to embrace it. So I, I like that it's kind of a maturing, a maturing of the mindset that there's enough space here for both worlds, and um, I think that's pretty cool. So I also think that they have such a high standard. If you think of some of the cheese brands around the world, they're like, we're not going to launch a vegan cheese unless it meets the regular dairy cheese profile taste texture so they weren't probably sure they could even get there and now um they're realizing that it is it is possible to taste like a real cheddar and it be a vegan version of that so i think the tools weren't really ready for them yet and now that they see that there is all sorts of components that can help them get there that's really helped with that Craig, do you sort of see that maybe that sort of ability to wait back to perhaps when the tools are ready again is perhaps something that uh, the large organisations like uh, you know Campbell you can uh, sit and wait for a while, or you've got the patient capital that uh, you can take on uh, a smaller opportunity and sort of wait for it to develop. I think you were t talking about one of the investments that uh, you've made recently. Yeah, so <clears throat> it, it depends on where we think we want to play in trends. And so first what I'll start off with saying is that every macro trend leaves a wake. And there's opportunity in both skating with the macro trend, but also operating in the wake of it. And so just to give you an example, um, you know, a few years ago when when whole grain breads were just taking off and you had great brands kind of riding that trend in the market, what happened that many of us didn't expect that some of us did expect was that basic good old white bread was going to become more popular. So you kind of had this bifurcation. You had this leading macro trend of whole grain, good for you bread, and then you had the the, the make me feel good kind of white bread, which really <laughs> has, has different nutritional profile. So there were opportunities both in the macro trend and in the wake of that macro trend. So I think where companies, large companies that have scale and, and resources need to think about when they're analyzing macro trends is that many times they're more suited to provide, to, to seek opportunity in the wake of a trend, um, but, and also to get on, on with trends. And, and so it becomes, comes down to, to choosing where they think really the market's going to go. Um, having said that, the scale the skills, the competencies, the resources to take something that is fledgling as a trend and turn it into something big tends to sit with large companies. Um, and then the key to, to making that happen is getting the right partnership externally. Because um, I think, as TC said before, when you acquire something, you need to be clear on what you're acquiring. Are you acquiring just a brand? Mm -hmm. Are you acquiring technology? Are you acquiring capability? Um, and then lean in with 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 whatever you, you agree to, to acquire and leverage that as your asset. Yeah, uh, and I, I do think that sort of clarity is important. Uh, just coming back to TC's um, mention of that quote, never been easier to start a brand but harder to scale a brand. Um, John, again, sort of in terms of uh, being involved in scale-ups, uh, is, is that something that you feel that you guys bring a lot to bear in sort of helping uh, some of these organizations, how, how do you go about that? Well, yeah, and no, I think that that's really, and scale does matter. I mean, especially if you want to turn some of these innovations into actual solutions that have a huge market impact. That scale is uh, um, is critical to reach the kind of, uh, uh, to, to reach farmers around the world in our case, or to reach the chain more broadly uh, as far as innovations go. And, you know, big, large companies are uniquely qualified to this. But I think one of the challenges we have thinking about some of the comments, great comments by the, by the panelists, is, is there's also a cultural element to this, um, Adam, and that is, you know, when you're looking at a technology that's potentially disruptive, um, you know, I think the world is littered with companies who saw those trends, saw the disruptor, and were so concerned about 
disturbing their 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 existing business because they were the market leaders. Um, and I think as companies, you have to kind of come to grips with, do you want to be disrupted or do you want to actually play a role in the disruption? <laughs> and I think that's a uh, that's kind of a unique cultural element to a lot of this is when you see some of these really cutting edge things, um, you know, we've kind of taken the, the approach and a lot of companies are now realizing that you're better off doing the partnerships, the collaborations to help uh, these disruptive technologies really grow and become because they're going to disrupt, it's going to disrupt you anyway so you might as well be part of it and help that uh, that reality uh, come to come to be versus trying to fight it because as i said there's a lot of companies who were market leaders saw disruptive technologies and weren't able to respond um and you know the the, the future is not not bright it's, in those cases versus really playing a role to help some of these really innovative cutting-edge technologies uh be the disruptive force and really become uh, the new standard on how things deliver and to really grow. And that's where the scale comes in. You can really help these things grow to, the, the, to, the, uh, uh, to their full potential. Yeah, I mean, but, but, but do we sort of kind of see the uh, opportunity to, uh, with acquisitions as well in terms of uh, people can sit back and uh, wait to an organization that's got to a particular size and, and then uh, kind of swoop in, as it were. Um, I mean, I, I've heard some people in the past that are discussing that uh, people outsource uh, some of their R&D, as it were, and that then w wait to uh, acquire companies in the sense they've picked up skills in reaching out, assessing, and acquiring companies. TC, um, I mean, have you got a view on the sort of kind of a, that kind of uh, developing a house or actually acquire companies. Um, uh, we had some conversation about, uh, you know, your views on acquisition. Yeah. So um, I, I think all of these models, uh, I don't think that there's necessarily a right or a wrong model in terms of when to acquire uh, capabilities, which is slightly different than acquiring companies. Uh, and how best to, so there are, one approach is to say, you know, we want to play, uh, we want to play in that field. I'm talking from the perspective of, I'll call it larger companies. We want to play in that field, but we're not really sure, uh, you know, how, you know, how this technology is going to impact and, and, but we want the license to kind of be involved uh, at this stage. And that, that's a different paradigm where you kind of get involved uh, from the standpoint of, okay, I, I want to stay informed. Uh, that's that's one end of the continuum to um, being ready to make the big bet, if you will, and say, I want to go, go and acquire this company. One of the challenges with waiting for a company to scale and then acquiring, obviously, the, the cost of acquisition is that much higher. When I say cost of acquisition, I mean not just mm. the financial cost, but also cost of acquisition and in integrating it into into the overall business. So that's at, at, at the two ends of the spectrum, if you will, and depends on the on the orientation of the, of the company in terms of the overall objective of, of what do we do with this uh, with this acquisition uh, of either technologies or book of business or or capabilities that like we're talking about uh, and and uh, and that I think should be very clear in the minds of the of the acquiring company uh, and, and and that should drive the decisions in terms of what to acquire when to acquire. Uh, and is it just an acquisition of, of um, I'll call it the, the softer uh, capabilities, or is there something hard that we're acquiring? Because uh, the acquisition part, although it's it's not uh, easy, is the easier part. Integrating that into the into the business and making it as successful, so a one plus one is is at a minimum three. Uh, that's the harder challenge typically, and some companies are are very good at that, and some companies are not. And so uh, it's important for the companies that are in the acquisition kind of mindset to, to figure out, okay, is this something that is within our skill set to be able to do that well? Uh, and if not, then, then maybe not a wholesale acquisition, but acquisition of, of parts and pieces. Uh, and again, I'll re uh, repeat, acquisition doesn't necessarily mean just acquiring a company. There's multiple ways to acquire skill sets, including partnerships and, 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 and being contributing members of the ecosystem. Would any others uh, on the call um, uh, like to comment about sort of acquisition, um, what you've uh, learnt or experienced or caution you'd uh, give other corporates around such acquisitions? Yeah, Adam, this is Craig. Uh, at Campbell's, we just, we're just we just in the midst of um, 
getting through the, the latter stage of integrating our largest acquisition in the history of the company, which was the Snyder's Lance Snacks portfolio. And, you know, one of the, um, one of the things that we liked most about that acquisition were the technology and manufacturing capabilities um, beyond just capacity that, that they brought to the table. And we, we quickly set out as an objective beyond the financial value capture of the acquisition, um, the ability to leverage those capabilities to quickly innovate was something we wouldn't have been able to do on our own. Um, and and that, that really um, yielded the uh, one of the biggest, you know, or most recent uh, goldfish innovations, which is on the market right now. So I think that being so deliberate as a leadership team on what assets you want to deploy and leverage quickly and then set, set, it, set plans in place to do that uh, just helps drive the ROI on some of these acquisitions. Okay. Um, in, in terms of perhaps uh, thinking about sort of the, uh, the, the startups that we're all sort of exposed to and certainly uh, a lot of the uh, space that I work on here in Singapore, uh, I think, uh, TC, you made a comment about uh, antibodies and what have you, but I'd just be interested in each of you perhaps your sort of experience in dealing with startups, maybe for the startups on the call, uh, kind of a, a bit of advice when uh, dealing with um, organizations like yourselves. How should they you know, best be approaching you? Or, or perhaps um, what do you feel sometimes are the um, oversights or the mistakes they make when approaching you or understanding larger corporates like yourselves? Uh, would you like to have a hit at that, Lorette? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges with, at least from Edlong's perspective on working with startups is knowing who the diamond in the rough is and who, yeah. um, you know, who has the potential to make it. Um, we use some tools, back to tools, some things like PitchBook, um, so you can like research them. I love knowing what their their passion and their purpose and their mission is all about. That really helps to see, you know, who's going to have the gumption to make it through. I think one of the things we help them a lot with is from a regulatory standpoint. Um, regulatory, as we all know, in the food world is really hugely important. And that's something that a lot of these, these startups come from without a food science background or a food background at all. We are finding that we have to do a lot of hand-holding and teaching in terms of compliance and things like that. But, um, but you want to find the ones that you believe, you know, there's, they're working in a blue ocean and there's a lot of, of runway for them to grow and it can be really fulfilling, very fun. It, it, but do you feel that there's a way that they're not presenting themselves to you in a way to make it easy for you to discover them as the diamond? What could they perhaps <laughs> do a better job of? How can they shine um, themselves up a bit to sparkle? Yeah, I think that you kind of learn that as you talk through their their strategy and their and their thinking if um if they've got all their eyes dotted and their teeth crossed and and they know you know the complexity like TC was talking about in order to scale yeah but i think there's i don't know what the statistics are you guys might know but i'm you know it's not not great on how many don't make it to the next level sure so it's I, a really it's a hard to hard to make that decision on you know, who's worth putting resources in. And really, I think it's also managing your deployment of resources within your own company of, okay, we're going to give them X amount of hours or X amount of time, and you got to keep reevaluating it as you're going along and making sure you're not wasting your time or money. So I, I, would, just echo, I would just echo those comments because um, one of the challenges in, in working with them is most of them don't know what they really need from a large company, beyond, beyond capital, of course. And so um, going through that learning journey of discovering what they have and what they need to make it scale uh, is time-consuming and, and a resource drain. But it, um, and, and, and the, uh, the frequency of, of finding something where, hey, there's a really great fit here uh, is not that great. So you need to get signed up for it on the long haul and commit the resources to do it in order to, to, to yield the fruit of that effort. I think that's that's an excellent point. From the standpoint of the starter startups, and uh, I I 
voice this as opinion, not necessarily advice, uh, is that it's, it's important for where I've observed dissonance, it's been in a, in a dissonance in expectations of the startups of the large companies and vice versa. From the start, standpoint of the startups, it's, it's, it's incredibly important, I think, to know what it is that you're looking for from the potential partner. Is it just a funding source? Uh, is it a potential customer for the new technology that the startup is bringing? Is it other capabilities, whether it's commercial, uh, whether it's manufacturing, um, scaling up regulatory, like Loret mentioned, uh, or you know, product development? It's, it's important to, for the startups to know exactly what they're looking for, and it, it, it could be multiple things, but then base the relationships uh, on those expectations. So if, for example, if you're looking at a company as a purely a funding financial resource and then you're asking for strategic help or product development help, that's different than the expectations that were set up earlier. And that has uh, has been kind of areas of dissonance uh, where some startups have, have done a very good job with that and some others haven't. And and this is also true on the other side, large companies. Look, what, are, what, are, what are large companies looking for from the startups? Uh, is it just new technology, something, something else? Uh, and basing the relationship on that uh, I think it is is incredibly important to kind of remove these areas of dissonance that are that cause friction, and 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 it's it's one of those things that both uh, entities, if you will, is we're going through a learning process uh, because this is new. Yeah, um, yeah, Adam, and uh, it's interesting because I, uh, John, again, so I had a uh, opportunity to uh, participate in a conference a few months back. Um, it's actually a group in, uh, brought together in Berkeley. California, which, as you all probably recognize, is right, right in the center of a lot of a lot of startups, a lot of tech funding, et cetera. Uh, but it was they asked three of us who are all leading major R&D organizations at large corporations to to address this group, which was all CEOs or, or COOs of, of startup companies and then venture capital fund managers. But they ended our session with a question: Give one piece of advice to the startup CEOs who are sitting in this audience. And my my advice was, uh, I started with telling them, I know you're all brilliant. I know you all went to Stanford or MIT or whatever, and, and we recognize that. But don't ever uh, minimize the level of expertise, the on-the-ground truthing that happens with the people that are sitting across that table from you, the folks who are dealing every day uh, with farmers around the world or with uh, suppliers around the world who know the world of food and, and tech. So, you know, there's a there's a – I mean, ag tech, uh, you know, a lot of funding flowing into ag tech now into these startups with brilliant, uh, really brilliant, cool people that are entering this space. Uh, but my one piece of advice was don't, uh, don't, don't, don't discount the level of knowledge that's sitting across the table from you. And that ground truthing is going to be absolutely essential for you to be successful because it's got to work in very practical terms and to turn your innovation into a real solution. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that's sort of a kind of a nice summary. Don't, don't underestimate. Uh, I think that uh, goes a long way. Um, just uh, looking, we're coming up uh, towards the uh, end of our time, but uh, just uh, thinking about uh, are there particular things that you feel that uh, anyone can take this, that um, particular competitive advantages that, uh, you know, large organizations like yourself perhaps um, don't always leverage enough or uh, what are the key uh, advantages that large organizations should be leveraging to sort of uh, drive um, the better R&D or, or general innovation success? Now, obviously, scale of itself and size and your channels are the particular assets that you think people often underestimate again. Um, uh, in, in large organizations looking at the whole R&D and innovation space. Yeah, Adam, like this is Craig Campbell. Um, you know, I'll take a, a, a shot at this. I think the, the two areas where uh, we pride ourselves and we leverage really, really well is our intimacy with our consumer base, the, the ability to have our finger on the pulse of where a consumer is heading, um, what matters to our consumer, and the ability to, to translate that into design is, is, a, is a competitive advantage versus, versus you know, competitors who tend to be uh, very narrowly focused, uh, not competitive, but, but um, startups, which tend to be very narrowly focused on, a, on usually a niche consumer target. So to get to scale, you need to understand the broader consumer base. And then the second is the intimacy with retailers and customers. 
which is really, again, the other unlock to, to get the scale, uh, having innovations get out there at, at broad reach across a wide consumer base. So those two areas are areas where we hold dear and, um, and uh, invest a lot of time and effort against. Okay. Is there any sort of closing remark? Anyone has been wanting to bust in and say but uh, didn't want to talk over anyone, something that I perhaps didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask? I love the purpose, the purpose comments um, from TC and others. And I think that's sometimes under leverage too. And you were talking about the stakeholders and what the stakeholders care about now is way deeper than it would, what it used to be. And I think mm-hmm. even in this, um, this time right now, I, it like warms my heart <laughs> how much collaboration and support we have a, I think this is just the coolest story. So in Chicago, there's about five or six flavor companies um, and some other ingredient companies that have joined together and said, okay, we're competitors, but we're friends and we're going to support each other. And if you need raw materials, if you get um, operators that become sick and you need help backing up, I just, I just think that is so cool. And I think, um, I think the food industry is, is amazing because we really all do. We might compete, but I think the more mature, we get and the more collaborative we get the better products we produce and I think our consumers love that I think they really enjoy that um, that it's you know we're all in this together so that was one thought very nice yeah, so, someone else wanted to uh, pop something in there was it oh oh yeah this is TC so uh, yeah first of all I completely agree with with uh, the sentiment that you just uh, articulated, and I think all of us feel that 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 same way. We're we're, we're lucky to be in, in in the industry that we're in. Uh, just going back to the comments we were talking about startups, uh, I think the, um, the the need at this point, as it pertains to innovation, is, uh, in my opinion, to be able to match the the creativity, uh, speed, and resilience of I'll call it the startup world with the capabilities, the scale. The market access, uh, and Craig, you talked about you know consumers uh, and and of the established players, and I do think there's enough room for for all of us. It's not a competitive situation; we can't afford to be because the need is so big. Uh, and but being able to kind of do this collaboratively, uh, I think is going to help the industry as a whole. Um, and, and so I'll I'll close with that. But it's hopeful. Great signs for the food industry, even in these these dire times. It's it's good to see kind of that that there is there is significant hope for the future. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that we really need to also work on, which we have, as you guys pointed out, some great consumer insights, all awesome you know, relationships with the consumer base. Uh, but I think one of the challenges we have, frankly, is how technology and innovation might be perceived at the consumer level. So we need to continue the conversation about how. Technology innovation is really an enabler to provide uh, the consumers the experience they're looking for, you know, whether it's the fresh, the local, all the things that they say that they love on some of the products. Um, I'm a big believer that technology innovation is, is an enabler of that. Um, but we need a lot more conversations at the consumer level so they understand how that plays into the ecosystem and how that really delivers the kind of food experiences they're looking for. Yeah, it's an, um Thank you, everyone. I mean, those last couple of comments have been a, a really nice summary, I think, of uh, what we've been talking about. You know, we opened up with, you know, speed and how, how things are moving faster to be more efficient. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, collaboration. Uh, and I think also just sort of bringing it all together, sort of the, the, the purpose, as uh, we were talking about with um, with the foods, about nourishment uh, in, in terms of seeing how that's what everybody's about through this collaboration and these difficult times, everyone's looking after one another. Um, but the other sort of kind of messages in, in terms of uh, acquisitions, understanding what, what you're requiring and why you're requiring, um, level of, um, you know, general expectations of one another and this um, concept of not underestimating people on the other side. But I think comes back again to uh was that you john i think right at the last point making about uh technology and innovation um is what uh enables um you know sustainable sustainable growth and sustainable in, in all the right ways and i think that's um what we need a lot more of in this kind of communication like this uh to get us through this current uh, crisis and position us um for the future so 
Um, thank you, one. Thank you all for uh, your participation uh, today. I know it's a difficult time to be uh, making time in your calendar, but thank you all uh, very much and uh, look forward to uh, meeting you face-to-face uh, -face, uh, when next uh, the conference occurs. Uh, thank you very much and good morning. You have been listening to the Rethink Future Food Tech podcast. To find out more about our global events and webinars, bringing together senior leaders to discuss the most pressing challenges and exciting tech innovations driving forward our food system, please visit futurefoodtech.com or follow the links in the description.